We've got an amazing collection of people um, who are all going to be telling a story from their life, from their work, from something, uh, a situation where they couldn't say something or where they did say it and what the consequences were. I'm just going to introduce all of our speakers and then we'll hear from them in sequence, um, um, uh, starting with Mia Friedman, ending with Jane Carrow. Mia Friedman, as you probably know, is the founder and publisher of Australia's fastest-growing women's website, mamamia.com.au. She started her uh, media career doing work experience at Clio, one of those people who seemed to be editor of an important national publication at the age of approximately 12, making the rest of us feel slightly nervous. She's also the author of three books, The New Black, Mamma Mia, A Memoir of Mistakes, Magazines and Motherhood, and Mia Culpa, Confessions from the Water Cooler of Life. Our second speaker is Larissa Berendt. She's a Yulayai Kamilaroi woman, professor of law and director of research at the Jambana Indigenous House of Learning at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's also the author of the novels Home and Legacy, and her most recent book is Indigenous Australia for Dummies. Her documentary, Innocence Betrayed, was nominated for a Walkley Award. So you can see a, a terrible bunch of over, underachievers overall. Anita Sarkeesian is a media critic, blogger, and the creator of Feminist Frequency, a video web series that explores the representation of women in pop culture and in pop culture narratives. In particular, her work highlights issues surrounding the targeted harassment of women in online and gaming spaces. Randa Abdel Fattah is a Sydney lawyer and writer of Palestinian and Egyptian heritage. She's the author of more than 10 books for young readers and somebody that we see often commentating on the media here and internationally about issues to do with Palestine, Islam or Australian Muslims. Jane, um, sorry, Tara Moss is a novelist, journalist, blogger and TV presenter. Since 1999, she's written nine best-selling novels, published in 18 countries and 12 languages. Her first non-fiction book, The Fictional Woman, was published in May 2014. She's a long-term advocate for the rights of women and children and is UNICEF's national ambassador for child survival. Just this week, as patron for the Full Stop Foundation for Rape and Domestic Violence Services, she was involved in the launch of this very important foundation. And our final speaker is Jane Carrow, a renowned journalist, broadcaster, author, uh, somebody, whether it's on Q&A or on the Gruen um, transfer um, or at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas here at the Opera House, has entertained and enlightened us. She's worked in the advertising industry and lectured in advertising at the School of Humanities and Communication Arts at the University of Western Sydney. So we've asked this lively bunch of women to talk about what they couldn't say, to give us as an example from their own life of something they couldn't say for one of the many reasons that sometimes make us keep things to ourselves. Because we didn't want to be pecked to death by a mob on Twitter. Because you've been trained from birth to be sensitive to the feelings of others. Because you're tired of calling out everyday sexism when you meet it and being known as difficult. Or because you secretly suspect that only you and your best friend will find it funny. So this is a session for all of us who are tired of being described by male colleagues as passionate because we talk about things as if we care about them or being told not to get angry or emotional when we thought we were just making a cool and rational point. If you think about Julia Gillard's misogyny speech, it feels like it might have been all of the things that she couldn't say for years coming out in one go. Things that it wouldn't have been sensible or strategic to let loose at the time, 
but in the end just came pouring out. So many women of all political colours recognised something in this speech. It struck a chord about a common problem. Many speakers at All About Women today have talked about the different ways that women are silenced or not heard and how these kind of environments train women to not even try and project their views. And a day like today gives women a platform to talk about anything, not everything, because absolutely there is never time, but certainly a huge range of issues. On an occasion like today, and many times in my career up to this point, I find myself acting in the role of a host, or as the person who's linking up this group of amazing speakers with this amazing audience. And there's something very deep that comes out when I find myself in this role, a terrible feminine politeness and deference. So that when I greeted Paul Keating quite a long time ago and introduced him to an audience, the balloon coming out of my head that said, you are not nearly as tall as you looked when you were standing next to Bob Hawke, <laughs> is invisible. Or when I introduced Margaret Atwood to an audience, I didn't say to them, be careful. She's just as terrifyingly sharp as you might have imagined. So don't let an innocent or foolish question out of your mouth. But I can't really bring myself to regret, regret that kind of professional politeness or the curbing of my natural tendency to blurt out everything. This is not a topic that just goes one way, which makes it all the more interesting. We tend to think that everything needs to be said, that if things are stifled, they will do you harm or make you inauthentic or repressed. We have a right to express ourselves and the truth will set us free from misogynies, great and small. But there's sometimes something very good about not saying everything, a form of restraint, a way of being attuned to atmosphere and the feelings of others in a way that is generous and gentle, in a way that is the legacy of the traditional female virtues that we're still inculcated with whether we like it or not. We've all encountered a stereotypical form of leader, often male, sometimes not, who never stops talking and who never listens. So knowing when not to say something is still a skill worth acquiring. Tonight, we've asked our speakers to cast this aside and you'll be hearing a series of stories about something they couldn't say or something that they did say and have to bear the consequences of. First up tonight, Mia Friedman. Exactly two years ago today, on International Women's Day, I was sitting on another panel of women. This time, it was Q&A's women's panel. With me were Jermaine Greer, journalist Janet Albrechtson, opera singer Deborah Cheatham, and an English researcher and writer called Brooke Magnanti, who is better known as Belle de Jour, the pseudonym under which she wrote a blog and then a book, which I had already read, bought and read, during the two years she spent as a sex worker. Host Tony Jones was asking Brooke at length about this period in her life during the program, and she was expounding at length on her views about sex work. She was very effusive about how empowering it was, how she'd used the great money she'd made as a sex worker to fund her university studies, and how sex work was about so much more than sex. 
It was about self-discovery and identity and having love and empathy for her clients. As I listened to Brooke speak so glowingly about her time as a sex worker, I became increasingly uncomfortable with this pretty woman meets go-girl feminist empowerment picture that she was painting of prostitution. She paid brief lip service to the fact that some sex workers did have chaotic lives, but this was quickly glossed over. Directly in front of me, in the audience, were more than a dozen teenage girls in their school uniforms. They were listening intently to Brooke's sunny, uncomplicated description of sex work with wide eyes. As I watched them listening, I felt sick. Eventually, growing frustrated with the fact Tony was allowing this woman's panel to be hijacked by such a positive portrayal of sex work, I couldn't help myself and I interrupted. Hang on, I said. Let's be clear that no little girl grows up wanting to be a sex worker. Boom. With that one sentence, the internet, or at least one very vocal corner of it, imploded with vitriol and outrage. The abuse towards me continued for weeks. Some of it continues to this day. There were demands that I apologise for saying I didn't want my eight-year-old daughter to grow up to be a sex worker. I know. And they insisted that they would hound me until I did. No matter how many times I clarified my comments, the hyperbole and hysteria became frenzied. I was accused of promoting violence against sex workers. I was accused of discrimination and I was even somehow accused of being homophobic. If you wouldn't accept your daughter being a sex worker, I bet you would reject her if she came out as gay, one woman tweeted to me, along with a tirade of very personal abuse. I said nothing about not respecting sex workers. I said nothing about condoning violence against anyone. I certainly didn't suggest anyone be rejected or castigated or ridiculed for the way they earned a living. When I said that no little girl grows up wanting to be a sex worker, I meant that for the majority of women, sex work is not an empowering choice. In most cases, not all, but most, it is a desperate and unwanted choice of last resort that comes from addiction, domestic violence, financial destitution, mental illness, sex trafficking or abuse. Brooke had a good experience. She remained in control. She worked on her terms. She was not raped or assaulted by her clients. She got out and I'm happy for her. But her story is the exception, not the rule. So I was deeply troubled by this fairy tale of sex work and loving empowerment that was going unchallenged on live TV. As a mother looking at those schoolgirls taking it all in, I couldn't stay silent, so I spoke up. And I was slammed by a group of women who were not interested in my explanation or my intention. They were not interested in calm discussion. They were not interested in knowing that I was on their side. I've spent my career advocating for women in all sorts of ways and I will never stop. They just wanted me to shut the hell up. The same thing happened about a year later when I wrote a post about binge drinking and the fact that as a society and as a mother of a daughter and sons, we needed to talk about the link between drinking and sexual assault. I did not think this was a new idea or even a terribly controversial one. I'm obviously acutely aware of the sensitivity around victim blaming, something that re repulses me, of course, and I was hypervigilant in my column, spelling out repeatedly in no uncertain terms that no victim of sexual assault is ever to blame, ever, 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 not ever. I could not have been more clear about this. I simply wanted to raise the fact that there were issues around consent and around judgment for both men and women that are impaired when you're wasted 
and that in a culture of binge drinking, which we have in Australia, there were conversations we needed to have about this. And that it should not be taboo to talk about that. Surely it shouldn't be taboo to talk around any issue affecting women, should it? The reaction from a group of online feminists was more vitriolic than anything I have ever experienced. These women, many of whom are many of whom are known to me and with whom I'm closely aligned ideologically, ripped me to shreds. And again, it went on for days and weeks. Once again, they did not want to engage in discussion. They did not want to challenge my points. They just wanted to shout me down and shut me up. They wanted to abuse me very personally and very publicly. Some individuals sent hundreds of abusive tweets to me and about me. These are not nameless trolls. These are what many call Twitter feminists. They tend to roam in packs and their objective often appears to be to shut down debate, conversation and any opinions they don't share. They are the self-appointed feminist sheriffs of the internet and they are as destructive as they are exhausting. Because this isn't about me. This isn't about the other high-profile women who are publicly ridiculed and attacked for transgressing some unwritten feminist rulebook women like actress Emma Watson and a journalist Wendy Squires, who have spoken out passionately about the need for men's voices to join in fighting for women's rights. It's not about one of the female producers of Q&A who fought tirelessly to get an entire episode dedicated to discussing domestic violence, only to be attacked mercilessly and publicly for the gender mix on the panel. This is not a pity party for us. This is not even about us. This is about all the young women who watch these attacks and decide it's way too risky to speak up as feminists. Not because of the misogynist trolls, ironically, but because of the risk of being publicly humiliated and policed by women they look up to and with whom they share common feminist goals and beliefs. At the Mamma Mia Women's Network, my husband and I employ around 90 staff. 85 of those are women, and the vast majority are under 30. And when we have our editorial meetings to decide who will write what on each of our websites each day, these young women are scared to put their hands up to write any of the posts about feminism or about any issues affecting women. They're terrified of being attacked by a mob of pitchforkers from the left, ripping them apart for using the wrong word or the wrong tone, for being too privileged, policing their grammar, calling them a disgrace to feminism, a traitor to their gender. They're scared silent. And that's the ultimate effect of the online feminist police. Make no mistake, I'm not from the simplistic kumbaya school of women must support other women unconditionally. As Annabelle Crabb wrote in her column today, under the vast umbrella of feminism, there will be people you love and people you can't stand. She's right. I'm from the Catelyn Moran School of Feminism that sees it as a rowdy bar full of interesting, passionate conversations with lots of disagreement. But there's no need to throw, drink in, uh, throw a drink in anyone's face or break metaphorical chairs over other people's heads. I am happy to challenge opinions and be challenged on my own any day of the week. I'm happy to learn and evolve my views and keep my mind open. Feminism isn't about supporting everything other women have to say, it's not. But it is about supporting women's rights to voice an opinion. And it's, not about, and it's about not abusing, mocking or threatening her when she does, just because your opinion is different to hers. This culture of aggressive thought policing in some online feminist circles has become oppressive and destructive. Make no mistake, these women are creating an environment where many women are scared to have a voice. And in silencing and shaming each other, 
in making our definition of feminism so narrow and exclusionary as to be an impossible standard to live up to, we're doing the work of our enemies, aren't we? Because every time a woman decides the price of speaking up too high, we all lose. Thank you. Thank you very much to Mayor Friedman. Our next speaker is Larissa Berend. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to acknowledge that we're on the land of the Gadigal people and pay my respects to elders, particularly on this International Women's Day, our female elders in our matrilineal societies. When I first started dating Michael, the man who's now my husband, several, several people said to him, oh, I hear you're dating Larissa. Oh, you must be brave. <laughs> Michael found this very amusing because apparently in private, I'm nowhere near as fearsome and scary as my public persona, or at least he tells me. Each of us is constantly labelled and in turn construct labels we place on others. These labels shape how we're perceived and are mostly created by mere snippets of information we receive about each other. And this, of course, has always been true, but in an era of merging old-style mass communication with the ubiquitous nature of social and digital media, the snippets of information become a flood. These platforms mean there's never been more opportunity for women to participate in public debate, nor has there been a period where there's been as much personal risk doing so as the snippets, whether accurate or not, are digi digitally accessible forever. Late last year, Sony executive Amy Pascal had her email attack, uh, account hacked and then selectively leaked and published. It caused quite a stir as it was portrayed as giving an insider's view of how Hollywood operated. One of the emails that was released and selectively quoted concerned Angelina Jolie. And while this email related to critical comments about the actor from a male colleague of Amy's, the way in which the story was reported attributed the criticisms of Jolie directly to her. Now, we always know the media never lets the facts get in the way of a good story, and that's doubly the case when the word catfight can be added in. Pascal was portrayed, and an image was created of her as a corrosive and difficult person. And this one example shows how easily some snippets of information taken from private correspondence and selectively used can create an image of a person that is misleading and damaging. But another theme that came out of the emails was the discrepancy between the income levels earned by male and female actors in Hollywood. In the aftermath of these revelations, Pascal was asked about this and she said, here's the problem, I run a business. People want to work for less money, I pay them less money. Women shouldn't work for less money. They should know what they're worth. Women shouldn't take less. And you think, well, that's easy to say. It overlooks all the structural, social and cultural issues which contribute to the pay inequality and which continue in Australia despite 40-year-old legislative action to overcome wage discrimination. But there was an important underlying truth in what Pascal said that should be drawn from this context, and that's this. We don't often value ourselves the way we should. We shy away from it. How often do we comment that women are reluctant to go for jobs unless they meet all the criteria, whereas men with much less experience seem not at all worried about just going for it? We're not very good at promoting ourselves and we're not very good at blowing our own horns. 
Some of this is a confidence issue, but it's also socialising. We get many messages not to show men up. They don't like it if we beat them. They won't date you if you keep winning arguments. It still seems unacceptable for women to be opinionated, to have strong views and to demand recognition for our worth. In all the breakthroughs that women have made in public life, becoming heads of companies and indeed heads of countries, it seems to be the one thing that we can't say to ourselves and to the world, and that is, well, frankly, we are awesome. Each of us today has been asked to relate a personal experience of paying the price of participating in public debate. And I've had the opportunity, and I believe flowing from this, the obligation to publicly advocate on issues affecting Aboriginal Australians. I felt passionately about this since I was a teenager. I always knew it was what I wanted to do. And I say an obligation because, apart from feeling it in my heart, the education and life chances I received was built on the breakthrough work of the generation of my father and my mother. Although of very different cultural backgrounds, they both were strong on the value of contributing back to those less well off in the community than you are. And there remains so much inequality, systemic discrimination and hardship in urban and rural Aboriginal communities. And things don't change unless people speak up. Based on the research that I and my colleagues at UTS have conducted on what works and doesn't work in Aboriginal communities to improve basic outcomes and life chances, I reached the conclusion in 2007 that the intervention into the Northern Territory's Aboriginal communities was bad policy. I believed it at the time, and sadly, these fears have been vindicated by the outcomes that the intervention would be destructive of achieving the very goals that it was stated as justifying. The intervention, however, enjoyed bipartisan political support, and when you take on something on which the right and left both agrees, your, your list of allies grows very thin. The views that I've expressed on the intervention have been highly criticised by particular elements of the mainstream community, and of course my opinion along with everyone else's can be contested. But should my very identity as an Aboriginal woman be attacked to delegitimise my entitlement to express a view? Is it bad to be opinionated as a, it is bad to be opinionated as a woman? It's also bad if you have an opinion and you are educated, successful, and light-skinned or sepia-toned, as I've been referred to. The sin is also compounded if you live in the city, like high heels, and don't have children. So I can very much sympathise with what has occurred more recently with Gillian Triggs and Peter Credlin. It doesn't seem to matter what the circumstances are or the validity of the underlying arguments. When it is a woman's voice that is raising a controversial or contested point, then the focus becomes the woman herself and not her point or the argument. The attacks on Peter Credlin appeared to be some of that same flavour. In fact, every time her boss does something stupid, there are calls that she should resign. A man stuffs up, so you sack the woman. My personal engagement with Peter Credlin was actually during her period as Chief of Staff of the then Communications Minister, Helen Coonan, and involved the founding of National Indigenous Television, NITV, of which I was the inaugural chair. It would be fair to say that NITV would not exist in Australia without the work of Helen Coonan and Peter Credlin. It was at the same time when the men in the party were acting like cowboys and riding into the Northern Territory with the army to roll out the policies that were destined to dis disempower the very people they were claiming to save. But with no fanfare and no self-congratulations and little acknowledgement, they established a national television service that became a voice for Indigenous people across the country and have provided jobs and training in media 
and television production. Helen Coonan and Peter Credlin just got on with it and got the job done. Based on this experience, perhaps Adam, uh, Abbott should be endeavouring to listen to Credlin more rather than marginalise her. I don't think it should be necessary for women to censor their views, but I think the problem is that we've not created enough areas where a conversation can occur that can be nurturing. And that's why I think it's important to signal support to women who take a stand and initiatives like Stand With Triggs, the Stand With Triggs hashtag. These show that social media can be fostering as well as having a power to be destructive. But my basic advice if you were to participate in the public debate is primarily don't read the negative comments online. In fact, don't read the comments at all. Don't let the toxicity in. My advice to my colleagues, especially women and young women, is don't read them at all, as you can't take on board what someone is writing with the cowardice of anonymity from a basement. For other safer and healthier forums in which to explore and discuss your ideas and engage critique with are the places where you should be discussing them. So I leave you with a three-part challenge. Firstly is to think about how you can create those safe spaces for conversations and discussions. Social media often isn't safe for women, but it's not the only space we can have discussions and conversations. Secondly, social media seems to make it very easy to rip people apart. But women who are out there in public life make it, making a difference do need nurturing. So how about writing to someone, a letter or an email, who you admire and who does good work and just tell them that you think that they're doing a really great job. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, when you go home and look in the mirror, remember what Amy Pascal said and tell the woman that you see there that she's pretty damn awesome. Thank you to Larissa Berendt for that. And our next speaker is Anita Sarkeesian. Oh, geez, I am so much shorter than that. <laughs> Hello. What I couldn't say is, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> To the thousands of men who turned their misogyny into a game, a game in which gendered slurs, death, and rape threats are weapons used to try and take down the big bad villain, which in this case is me. My life is not a game. I've been harassed and threatened every day for going on three years with no end in sight, and all because I dared to question the self-evident, obvious sexism running rampant in the games industry. Nothing about my experience is a game. What I couldn't say is I'm angry. When people who know what I go through on a daily basis meet me in person, they often react with some surprise, saying things like, I don't understand how you aren't more angry, because I'm just being me. I'm usually kind of charming and nice to people. But I respond saying that I am angry. In fact, I'm furious. I'm angry that we live in a society where online harassment is tolerated, accepted, and excused. Where, services, where web services and law enforcement are not taking responsibility for the abuse that women suffer every day online. I'm angry that I'm expected to accept online harassment as the price of being a woman with an opinion. What I couldn't say is anything funny. Most of my friends would describe me as a little bit snarky and pretty sarcastic. 
And you can occasionally glimpse this part of my personality in earlier criticism videos, but I almost never make jokes anymore on YouTube. Even though humor can be humanizing and I like using it, I don't do it because viewers often, often interpret humor and sarcasm as ignorance, especially if those viewers are male and the ones making the jokes happen to be female. You would not believe how often jokes are taken as proof that I don't know what I'm talking about or that I'm not a real gamer, even when those jokes rely on a deep knowledge of the source material. So as a result, I intentionally leave that more humorous side of my personality out of my current video presentations. I rarely feel comfortable speaking spontaneously in public spaces. I'm intentional and careful about the media interviews I do. I decline most invitations to be on podcasts or web shows. I carefully consider the wording of every tweet to make sure it is clear and can't be misconstrued. Over the last several years, I've become hypervigilant. My life, my words, and my actions are placed under a magnifying glass. Every day I see my words scrutinized, twisted, and distorted by thousands of men hell-bent on destroying and silencing me. What I couldn't say is I'm a human being. I don't get to publicly express sadness or rage or exhaustion or anxiety or depression. I can't say that sometimes the harassment really gets to me, or conversely, that the harassment has become so normal that sometimes I don't feel anything at all. The death threats come through on my social media and it's just become a routine. Screen cap, forward to the FBI, block, and move on. I don't get to express feelings of fear or how tiring it is to be constantly vigilant of my physical and digital surroundings. How I don't go to certain events because I don't feel safe. Or how I sit in the more secluded areas of coffee shops and restaurants so the least amount of people can recognize me and to see me. I don't show how embarrassed I am when I have to ask the person who recognized me in my local grocery store to please not mention the location where they met me. Somehow we fooled ourselves into thinking that by expressing human emotions, it somehow means that the harassers have won. This false belief is largely because in our society, women are not allowed to express feelings without being characterized as hysterical, erratic, bitchy, highly emotional, or overly sensitive. Our expressions of insecurity, doubt, anger, or sadness are all policed and often used against us. But by denying ourselves the space to feel and to share those feelings, we're just perpetuating this notion that we should all suffer alone, that we should all just toughen up and grow thicker skin, which we shouldn't have to do. What I couldn't say is, I don't even want to be saying any of this. Largely because I still feel fear that expressing human emotions publicly will make me seem insecure. The truth is that women who persevere and retain some measure of their humanity are not expressing weakness, they're demonstrating courage. In all the different, messy, honest ways that we respond to harassment, we actually demonstrate how much humanity we all still have in the face of such cruelty and injustice. Thank you. That was Anita Sarkeesian. And next up, Randa Abdel Fattah. Being a Muslim is an overdetermined subject position. Whatever being a Muslim woman means to me, I'll also be many other things according to other people. Oppressed or liberated, moderate or radical, oppressed veiled victim of religious dogma or exotic other. To therefore speak publicly is to enter a field that has been mapped with reductive tropes and stereotypes in advance. 
Because my, be my very being is overdetermined, the questions I am confronted with when commenting in the public space are, can a Muslim have an idea? Can she speak for herself? What are the limits to what you can say as a Muslim woman? What happens to a Muslim woman who has an agency that contradicts Western perceptions of her oppression? Let's consider, for example, that in the burqa debate, and we need to have one at least once a year, white men and some white women are claiming to liberate Muslim women from Muslim men, despite their decision to wear the veil. That is, regardless of what the Muslim woman thinks about herself, her clothes, her religion, or what she wants and desires, none of that is relevant or necessary for her liberation. Indeed, her thinking, her agency becomes a problem for Western perceptions of Muslim women's oppression, which enables the moral outrage to circulate without her. When I enter the debate to argue the point that A, we need to get over our veil fetishism, stop defining Muslim women by their dress and accept that women can dress however the hell they choose, and B, that the debate is steeped in hypocrisies and fantasies about helpless Muslim women needing to be rescued by a Western knight, which might have been Prince Philip. Reflect on the irony of that, if you will. <laughs> My feminist credentials are immediately questioned. I'm betraying Muslim women. I'm brainwashed by religious dogma. All public commentary is multi-layered and very risky. To speak as a woman, as a middle-class white woman, is a privileged position, and that invites the wrath of many. To speak as a Muslim woman is even riskier because your very agency and ability to speak is questioned, let alone your particular opinion. In many cases, people are brought in to talk on your behalf based on a fantasy about what your politics is, the idea that being Muslim means you have a bias or weakness of intellect in arguing a certain position. I see that as part of a wider problem that applies systemic pressures on my ability to speak as part of a minority community. See, as Australians, we're very good at performing and denouncing racism in public, using blackface humour on one of Australia's most popular TV programs or likening an Indigenous AFL player to King Kong or racist rants on public transport. Such incidents capture our attention as a nation and are roundly condemned. But we're not so good at addressing the everyday, banal, subtle racism, the kind that reinforces and shores up institutional white privilege. The same can be said of sexism. There was, for example, understandable uproar when Tony Abbott referred to Liberal candidate Fiona Scott's sex appeal during the 2013 election campaign. And yet we came out of that election with a male as a minister for women, a cabinet with two women, and a political party that sees no problem or irony in holding an International Women's Day event at an exclusive men's club. <laughs> there will always be people who campaign for cosmetic change at the surface, preferring to renovate, not detonate. Then there are people who think, screw that, I'm going straight to the foundations, bring out the dynamite and let's slash, smash the structures. And that's how I want to tackle racism and sexism. Because I understand racism and sexism at both ends of the spectrum. I've been on the receiving end of vulgar, crass, nasty racism. For example, on social media, I'll just read out some of you some of the things I've received. Hey, Rhonda, culture and heritage are two different things, you incestuous pedophile lover. Assimilate, be damned. We don't want you here at all, full stop. You're not welcome until you're, you denounce your evil ideology and we'll get to a point. If you don't denounce it, then you will perish. It's that simple. I say put abortion clinics in Lakemba. It always amazes me, Rhonda, when I see that someone, is, someone that is oppressed and is too stupid to even realise it. You make me think there really is a whole new breed of stupid. 
You are not an Australian. You are not welcome in our country. Go home, Satan. You are not welcome in our country. Did you have your vagina mutilated as a girl? Go home. You're not welcome here. Go. Australia for the Australians. Your evil views are hate-filled and racist. You're an evil, racist woman. That just scratches the surface. And as appalling as all of these are, to focus our attention only on this, I think, perpetuates a folk view of racism and lets people at the top get off the hook. Because, as sociologists say, states give people permission to hate. It's wrong for us to think that it's just the crazies, the bogans, the irrational individuals. It ignores that racism and misogyny are structural, that we all participate and benefit, some more than others, whether we like it or not. And that focusing our efforts only on the trolls misses the subtle, silent, institutional, because a system can't be maintained by the racist, sexist, crass types. It needs a system, a material system, to maintain itself. So I just want to quickly unpack that for you in the short time that I have remaining with an incident that I found far more disturbing than any of the trolls that um, attacked me online. Last year, I appeared on ABC's Q&A, and the main topics revolved around the counter-terrorism raids in Western Sydney in September, Abbott's Team Australia rhetoric and radicalisation in general. And I expressed many views, but in short, my position was to contextualise Islamophobia and demand we address radicalisation in a, with a conversation that examines the role of Western governments in basically throwing a match onto the Middle East and then wondering why it's burning. And also question the timing and the motives and strategy of the government's counter-terrorism um, operations. Many of the statements I made weren't particularly um, you know, original. Many male opinion journalists and general journalists in op-heads had said the same thing the week before. Non-Muslim Western academics and commentators have been saying the same things for years. And of course, you go on Q&A, you know the trolls will emerge, and I'm used to it, and I can, and I can deal with it. But I, and I wasn't picked apart, not because of what I said, but because I was a Muslim woman saying it. How come your husband let you, someone said. Are you trying to fool us into thinking you're a moderate because you don't wear a veil and wear bright lipstick, and so on. But what disturbed me more was that I received an email newsletter that week from my federal MP, a Liberal. He proudly informed his constituents, not realising I was one of them. Following last week's Q&A program, I raised with my colleagues my concern about the lack of balance and the airing of anti-Western and anti-Australian conspiracy theories. The program did us a big disservice and provided a platform for extreme views. The ABC is a publicly funded broadcaster and has a responsibility during serious national security climate to present balanced views. The ABC did a big disservice to our society, giving half-baked conspiracy theory about our government and security services. Q&A framed their questions throughout this program in a way that this conspiracy theory was the dominant view of Muslims in Australia. This can only needlessly inflame tensions at a time when the government and the media have a grave responsibility to ensure moderate Islamic voices are heard. Then there was a table which showed the number of responses and share of response time from each panellist. The panel was described as coalition, Labour, Greens. Anne Azhar Ali, who is an academic at Curtin University and was on the panel with me, she and I were described under the label Muslim. Next, the questions from the audience were analysed via two categories, Anglo-Australians and Arabic Middle Eastern Australians. Presumably, anybody who asked a question that was not sympathetic to the government was profiled as an Arab or Middle Eastern Australian, and anybody who was sympathetic was Anglo-Australian. Nice to know your politics is all sorted out for you. So could you get any more us and them? And I think that the issue was that Anne and I, two strong, opinionated women of Muslim and Arabic heritage who were asking tough questions of the government, was too much for that federal member to take. The implication of all this was that Anne and I were now presumably radical, extreme, not moderate, un-Australian, anti-Western conspiracy theories. We'd struck big. 
The danger of this was that these kind of labels in today's world have serious connotations. To be a Muslim woman with political agency, questioning the actions of governments is to be an extremist, a radical. To be moderate is to play the role of subservient compliance stooge. I take desert nigger raghead Muslim scumbag insults any day over the alternative, which is a federal member of parliament effectively trying to silence me. So it removes me as an equal subject in the national political conversation and it's getting too much to bear to feel as an outsider in our own country. So long as my right to political participation as an equal is threatened, I will not be silenced. And that is where the most serious racism registers. Sorry. Thank you to Randa Abdel Fattah. Tara Moss. Thank you, Randa, for your voice and thank you for not being silenced. What I couldn't say, what so many couldn't say, can't say, don't want to hear. Voices matter. Your voices matter. I came to find my voice perhaps last year after writing 10 or nine fiction novels. I put out my 10th book. It was my first non-fiction book. And after observing the world through the lens of a being female, uh, coming to a new country from Canada, and also being a crime writer and spending time with victims of crime, with survivors of crime, with police officers, I'd seen a lot and I guess I finally wanted to just peel back the layers of fiction, peel back that veneer, and head straight into the center. And one of the things that really uh, struck me, one of the reasons why I felt I had to write my first nonfiction book, is to actually take some of the stats and the figures, some of these things I'd come across, and put it straight in. Not under fiction, but under real life. And you tell me if you think if I put these stats in a book that was fictional, if you would even believe it. Women comprise 50.2% of Australia's population, but as of this year, they make up less than one third of our, all parliamentarians and occupy roughly 10% of all cabinet positions. About 70% of front page bylines in Australian newspapers belong to male journalists, despite the fact that an equal number of men and women are employed as journalists in Australia. During six months of US election coverage in national print, TV broadcast, and radio outlets, 81% of statements about abortion were made by, by men. As of 2010, the National Gallery in the UK had 2,300 works in its collection, of which 10 were by women. In the top grossing 250 films of 2012, 90% uh, 91% of directors were men, as well as 85% of the writers, 83% of the executive producers, and 98% of the cinematographers. In 2013, the top 10 male actors combined made over two and a half times more than the top 10 female actors combined. 
And of course, now we know that women in Australia working full-time make on average 18.8% less than their male counterparts who are also working full-time. So those were some of the stats. And I thought about my life and the experiences I've had, and I thought about the context of those stats. And I thought, I'm going to take my experiences and write them in a book, but try to look at the bigger picture. And one of the things that I wrote about was one of those things I hadn't been able to say as a public figure. I hadn't been able to, to speak out and show solidarity with other survivors of crime and speak about my own experience as being a survivor of crime. It's something I hadn't done as a public figure. Yes, there had been a trial. Yes, that is part of my history. But once I started to be a public figure, it was not something I discussed. And I decided I would write about that in this book, along with a lot of other issues. And it was incredible to me that in a you know, 310-page book where I tackled gender issues of all sorts, tackled a lot of different issues, looking at uh, systems of oppression, looking at history, looking at women's position in the world today, looking at social justice issues, what people grabbed onto was that one page in chapter three. It was the fact that I'd come out as a survivor of sexual assault. That was the thing I couldn't say, the thing I finally said, and the thing that changed things for me pretty dramatically last year. So let's talk about the rest of the stats. Let's talk about those stats I haven't just mentioned. Let's talk about the fact that about one in five women will be sexually assaulted in her lifetime. Let's talk about the fact that about one in three women will be impacted by violence. Let's talk about the fact that in this country today, the number one non-disease-related cause of death, disability, and illness is intimate partner violence. Let's talk about the fact that in previous years, it's been reported that about one woman each week is being killed in Australia by an intimate partner or former partner. And the fact that so far in this year, 2015, it's been more than two women every week who've been killed. So let's talk about that and look at that bigger context. But of course, there are many barriers to speaking out. I know that as well as many other people. You don't have a lot of rosy baddies in the world who can come and stand on a stage and speak about their experience. There are so many reasons for that. It is not an easy thing to talk about something that has impacted a lot of the people in this room. And if you haven't personally experienced this, it will have impacted someone you know, someone who's dear to you. This is an issue that we all need to talk about. It's an issue that matters. We need voices to talk about these very serious issues that are impacting all of our community at all levels, but disproportionately impacting women and girls in our communities. As a woman, I believe we should talk about this, but also as a, as a human being, this matters. This isn't a women's issue, this is an issue for all of us. So when I hear the stories from all of these other incredible women, and I hear the ways in which they're bullied in public spaces, I want to say, don't give up, because there already are too few women's voices being heard, particularly women in the, the kind of communities who are impacted even more seriously. Indigenous women are 38 times more likely to be hospitalized by assault, are 10 times more likely to be killed by assault. We need to be able to talk about these issues. We need to listen to one another and give the space for women to talk about 
some of the most important pressing issues of our day. If we continue to allow bullying, and by the way, I should mention that the type of bullying that a lot of people speaking um, up here today are talking about is actually illegal. It is illegal to, um, to threaten someone with physical violence, with rape or death, whether it's in a tweet, in a letter or in person. That is illegal. It is also illegal to um, encourage someone to kill themselves. And I know that many people who are speaking at All About Women today have had threats like that in the last 24 hours. As a community, we need to stand up and say it's not okay. And as human beings, we need to stand together and say, I support you. I'm going to listen to you. I believe you. And your voice is worth hearing because we cannot afford to lose one single good advocate. Thank you. That was Tara Moss. And to conclude our session this evening, Jane Caro. I have always been an incredibly fortunate person. I am the goddamn living embodiment of the white, privileged, middle-class, educated, woman. I live on the lower North Shore. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. This apparently means to a lot of people I have no right to speak up about anything. Tragically, I couldn't give a shit whether you think I have a right to speak up about anything or not. I am constitutionally incapable of not speaking up if I feel the need to do so. I also, if I see injustice, if I see something that I think is wrong, I can't shut up about it. I don't know, maybe there's a gene for it. Maybe it's the way I was brought up. Maybe, you know, I've got some sort of crazy speak up about it mental illness. But I don't care. I will continue to speak up about the things that make me feel angry, make me feel passionate, Move me, as all the speeches that have gone before me this afternoon have done. I also feel, actually, that as a white, middle-class, privileged, educated woman, I have more of a duty to speak out than perhaps other people do, because I take less risks by doing so. I notice that I'm, I'm also married. I've been married for 40 years, I know. Who could have stuck with me that long? <laughs> Man's amazing. Um, but I realise that that also gives me an enormous sense of safety. I sometimes watch some of the younger, more outspoken feminists who get absolutely slaughtered on social media or in the public eye, and I know that many of them live on their own. And sometimes I think to myself, they shouldn't care about what those other people say about them. But then I remember that at home with me is my husband, who says to me, oh, they're just wankers, don't worry about them. What an idiot, who cares what they say? And also makes me feel physically safer just by being there with me. That also gives me a duty to speak out. Oh, yes, I've had my slightly unfortunate moments. Q&A, bit of a theme. 
bit of a theme running through uh, this sort of session, isn't there? And yes, if they ask me, I will go back. Um, many women won't, but I bloody well will. Because I don't answer to anybody. It doesn't matter what I say. The worst thing that'll happen is I'll be wrong or say something stupid. As if that hasn't happened a million times before. And won't happen again. Of course it will. But I don't, I really don't feel as vulnerable about all that. And I'm here to tell you a secret. There are a few grey heads in the audience. Getting older makes it safer to say what you think. Because frankly, they don't care about you anyway. I don't, I don't get sexual trolling. No one says they want to rape me. <laughs> I get you're a bitter, ugly, twisted old hag. <laughs> or as I did the other day, you're ageing badly. <laughs> My response to that is to go back and say, you mean you're not sexually attracted to me? What a fucking relief that is to know. <laughs> when I was on Q&A, I will tell you the experience was funny. When I was on Q&A, I was also on Mia with a um, woman who had been a sex worker and had written a book about it. And, you know, what I hated about it was it was an all-woman panel um, last year to do with the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Thanks, Anne. And uh, they, they got a bunch of women on and that, well, I thought that'd be good, except did we get asked a single question about politics or economics or anything like that? No, it was vagina, 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 vagina. Because apparently that's all we know about. <laughs> it's all we got, a vagina. So it was about sex workers. And I'm seeing there, somebody in the audience gets up and says, you know, I'm going to ask Kaya, her name was, about sex workers. And I relaxed. Foolish thing to do on the Q&A panel. I warn you against it. I relaxed. Because I thought, oh, good, it's going to her. Dear Tony Jones decided to do, as he later admitted, a hospital pass. And he said, yes, I want to hear from Kyra in a minute, but I'm just going to ask Jane Caro about that. I'm thinking, oh, great, sex workers. I know so much as a white, privileged, middle-class woman about sex work. You know, I'm really the right person to ask. And then I got irritated. I thought, I don't like talking about sex workers as if they're a sort of unique, weird group of strange women over here, sort of discrete group. So foolishly, I decided to try and broaden it out a bit. And I said, um, some of you may recall, and I said, look, in the past, in traditional marriages, when there was conjugal rights, and women didn't have a right, actually, to say no to sex in marriage, and they weren't entitled to keep their own earnings, and very few of them worked outside the home. Well, you know, where's the difference, really, between trading room and board for giving your sexual and reproductive services to your husband and, you know, uh, actual sex work. And I said, and really, you know, it's been... A, I can see the attraction of sex workers because at least when you're a sex worker, the, you know, appointment usually only lasts about an hour. And um, <laughs> once upon a time, it lasted a lifetime, ladies. It lasted a lifetime. And I thought that was a reasonable answer. I thought, well done, Jane. Slid out of that one nicely. <laughs> relaxed, was happy, excellent. And uh, the next morning I woke up, turned on my um, iPad, looked at my Twitter feed, and there are all these people saying, you've just called me a prostitute. <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't even know you. 
on earth would I call you a prostitute? Lo and behold, I find that news.com, that bastion of ethics and well-researched journalism, has uh, decided to run the story about my comments on Q&A. must have been a very slow night. And... Um, the article itself, you could argue, did not misquote me, and they had a clip of what I said, which is not misquoting me. But no one does that anymore. They don't read anything. The headline said, Housewives are prostitutes. <laughs> now, if you Google my name, I recommend never doing it, but um, if you do, that's what comes up. Story after story after story about how I think housewives are prostitutes. Now, I'd just like you to take you back to that moment where I said that I'd been married for 40 years. <laughs> Five of those years I spent at home looking after small children. Now, I don't recommend you do that either. But I did it for my sins, and now Mark Latham will write a column about me. Um, and so... Why on earth would I say that women who did what I did for five years were prostitutes? I was clearly talking about the past. I got rung up and interviewed on radio. Ben Fordham rang me up and said, well, you've had an absolute shocker today, haven't you? I said, have I been? I have, what I've done is the smart thing. I've turned off all the television, radio, Twitter feed. I'm not getting the newspapers. I'm reading nothing. Well, he hated that answer. I was meant to be weeping on the end of the phone. Oh, I've heard a terror. People are calling me. Oh. The only thing I'll say is it passed. I mean, OK, it hasn't on Google. It's still there. Sorry? I know it is. I have. I did check before I came and gave this speech. I thought, I better not claim something that isn't true. I know it's fantastic. <laughs> Look, it's a reputation. The only thing that really worried me about that was I was about to do a really big, well-paid corporate speaking gig the next weekend, and I did worry if they'd cancel on me. And that is one of the things that can also happen when you speak out, that you lose actual income. And I know, we to their credit, the corporate never even mentioned it. It was absolutely fine. They didn't pay attention. And then, of course, I thought, yes, I won't name the company, but they're famous. You've probably had a bit of unfair press in the media yourself. It's probably made me more attractive to you, not less. <laughs> My problem is that I actually refuse not to say things. I've talked about my abortion. I've talked about, well, just about anything that's ever happened to me. Tragically, if you ask me a question, I will give you an honest answer. <laughs> so all I can say to you is consider carefully what question you'd like to ask me. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're going to have to hang on to those questions for Jane. Tonight was just a pleasure for us to hear those stories, those voices, those wonderful uh, accounts of the difficulty and the persistence and the perseverance uh, of women in telling their stories. I want to thank this group of extraordinary women for the way they have managed to celebrate what they have managed to say. Uh, the travails that they have endured. It seems to me that uh, we don't need to worry too much about what they haven't said, that they've managed to get most of it out and it is to our good fortune that they have. Thank you to our wonderful panel.